If you would like a written out form of this four-part series and a single essay titled Lessons from Lenin, What is to be Done? I will be posting the complete essay, which includes the three lessons and concluding remarks, at patreon.com faithandcapital later this week. And there you can also find a growing library of other bonus episodes and writings. Thanks for listening, for supporting this work, and I hope you find this series clarifying for our particular situation in the U.S. said of Lenin's what is to be done that hasn't already been said? To be honest, not much. Which is why I'm not going to focus on the particularities and context in which Lenin was writing, and instead, I'm going to turn our attention to three general ideas and some concluding thoughts generated from my reading of this foundational work that I believe have great import for those of us currently living in the United States and committed to the struggle for national liberation and proletarian democracy. Rather than doing a chapter-by-chapter analysis, I have found three general truths that I believe can be particularly applied to our situation, but it is important to understand these truths less as abstract principles and more as lessons learned from concrete analysis of concrete experience and struggle. Thus, the three main lessons to be learned if colonized peoples and the working class aim to end their national and class subordination are number one, objective ideological struggle within and amongst revolutionary organizations is essential for developing a strong revolutionary movement. Number two, mass work, including political exposures, must be comprehensive as opposed to economistic. And number three, an organization of revolutionaries is indispensable for the success of our revolutionary movement, whereas a party of amateurs will undermine our mass struggle for national liberation and proletarian democracy. In this third lesson, I will also speak to why the People's Party must be Maoist as opposed to Leninist. Those are the three main lessons I generated from my reading of Lenin's What is to be Done. And to conclude my discussion of these three lessons, I will wrap up the series with a reflection on the principal task of our situation and the necessity of mass work. So, with that said, let's begin. Lesson number one. Objective ideological struggle within and between revolutionary organizations is essential for developing a movement strong enough to realize national liberation for our internally colonized nations and proletarian democracy for the working class. In the U.S., many who think of themselves as Marxist seem to abhor the idea of engaging their own comrades, let alone other kinds of Marxists, in struggle over theory, program, and line. And I'm not talking about the Twitter shitposting where someone subjectively critiques another tendency in 120 characters or less while hiding behind a screen like a coward. We all know how easy it is to get sucked into that counterproductive abyss. But objective, concrete, 
ideological struggle within our own organizations and between organizations of different ideologies is another story. In What is to be Done, Lenin identifies four ideological tendencies within the revolutionary movement that lead to wrong practice. And those four are economism, legalism, spontaneity, and terrorism. All of these four tendencies are actually linked by their worship of spontaneity, while terrorism is the only one of the four that errs not for being tailist, like the other three, but for being commandist and reactionary. And while Lenin connects terrorism to economism in later chapters, I think the three tendencies of economism, legalism, and spontaneity particularly show up in our present-day historical. So, those are the three I'd like us to focus on. But first, why is waging ideological struggle important at all? Marxism, Leninism, Maoism's conception of history, historical materialism, and its conception that the class struggle in society will be mirrored within a party and within the revolutionary movement can help us understand why ideological struggle is a necessity in the first place. As long as classes materially exist, and the ideas of the old, racist, sexist, capitalist world lingers, which they may for a while even during socialist transition, those ideas deeply embedded within us individually and communally can sneak up on us and we not even be aware of it. And so it isn't a dogmatic love for debate or some self-absorbed desire to always be right that drives the necessity of struggling over theory, analysis, strategy, and tactics. Rather, it is the material conditions and contradictions that imposes this necessity upon us. We wage ideological struggle to come to new understandings dialectically and to unify a movement under the most correct as opposed to an incorrect line. And by line, I mean a general plan with a particular strategy and tactics, based on some kind of theory and analysis. Without struggling between the many different theories and programs that claim to understand the nature of a problem and offer a particular solution to said problem, or even the many contradicting variations that claim to be Marxist, a movement against the very real forces of exploitation and oppression would oscillate this way and that, eclectically mishmashing one strategy with another then one set of tactics incoherently alongside other conflicting tactics, and a mishmash movement guided by an eclectic buffet of a bunch of different ideologies that analyze societies differently, understand problems differently, and offer very different strategies and tactics, let alone solutions, is a weak, confused, and easily defeated movement. As long as eclecticism is hegemonic among the so-called U.S. left, the masses will never be unified in their struggle for national liberation and proletarian democracy. But struggle isn't solely to be waged between, say, liberalism and communism, or contradictory socialist organizations, or even within a single organization. The Maoist principle of one divides into two should be applied to us individually as well. There are aspects of our attitudes, practice, and thinking that are contradictory. 
It's an unavoidable fact of all things, including human consciousness. But despite our best attempts to think and consequently practice in ways that are purely unified and without contradiction, aspects of our practice and thinking can simultaneously be right and wrong. And a dialectical materialist should reject the lie that anyone's beliefs or habits are pure and flawless and above struggle. No member in a revolutionary party or in a socialist society will ever be above the need to self-critique and receive criticism from even the lowest-ranking cadre, and especially the masses. And to be clear, the correctness and incorrectness of an idea is determined by the class interests that it materially serves. With a given set of contradictions and a given composition of each class, in a given stage of a protracted people's war, in a general state of consciousness and activity of the masses. Some programs, slogans, and tactics will be more right than others because of the idea's ability to actually serve in the interests of the masses' struggle. Does it serve to advance the people toward liberation? Or does it slow down their struggle, even reverse their advances made thus far? And in what is to be done, Lenin engages. He struggles against the wrong ideas that lead to the wrong practices of economism, legalism, and the worshipping of spontaneity. So, let's define these three errors because, again, I think they are particularly important for us in the U.S. to be able to identify and avoid in our present situation. Economism. Economism is the ideological tendency put into practice by a movement or organization set out to organize workers at their places of work or at the ballot box for the end goal of reforming and modifying the relationship between the masses of workers and the colonizing bourgeois state and ameliorating the workplace and living conditions of the masses. The highest level of consciousness to be developed among the workers, according to economism, is one that recognizes a necessity to fight for better wages or better workplace conditions against bosses or even monopolies. Your boss wants to squeeze your labor for profits? Well, don't let him. Get your co-workers together and fight for a fair wage. Equality and fairness. This is what this fight is all about. This is what we are really fighting for, the economist organizer might say. The workers don't need to overthrow their ruling capitalist class, let alone wage a protracted people's war. Instead, workplaces and trades should organize their separate workplaces and trades for fair wages and just conditions. Even elect politicians that could pass pro-labor policy. Those are the ultimate goals the masses should fix their eyes upon. So, revolutionary consciousness is clearly unnecessary and dispensable, if not problematic, for American movements and organizations that are at their heart economistic. But their activity, too, often emphasizes organizing individual workplaces, individual trades, or even developing and expanding worker cooperatives within a capitalist market. 
They believe a United States with a high percentage of unionized workers, worker cooperatives, and fair labor laws is a fundamentally transformed, even socialist, United States. If only the workers are willing to see their need to build this movement together. But even organization and agitation can seem overbearing and commandist at times for the economist. Workers certainly don't need a revolutionary party, and perhaps it's best not to agitate workers at all. Maybe we should let the workers spontaneously come to their own analysis of their situation, and the conclusion that it's in their interests to struggle collectively for better workplace and living conditions. But for the revolutionary communist, we know that a unionized and cooperativized workforce in a capitalist settler colony is neither socialist nor just. How can we have socialism if indigenous people and lands and Africans and Latinos and West Asians and East and Southeast Asians remained colonized subjects without national sovereignty? How can we have socialism if the ruling bourgeoisie and their state apparatus especially their armed forces and political organs, have not been smashed and defeated in battle by a working class who seeks not mere reform, but political power. You can't. Economism is a disease. It undermines the people's consciousness. It teaches them to remain subordinated and mystifies their exploitation. Economism turns what should be organizing opportunities to develop the consciousness and activity of the masses and the people's movement for national liberation and class power into a means of reproducing the oppression of the people. Therefore, economism, as both an ideology and strategy, ultimately serves the interests of the white colonial bourgeoisie. Legalism Legalism is the ideological tendency put into practice by a movement or organization set out to change the nation, and even the world, by changing its laws. Legalism may utilize large mobilizing efforts to some degree, but even when it does, it tends to depend upon a few top mobilizers and emphasizes legal mass marches that demonstrate to politicians that lots of people want said legal reform. The main actors in the struggle are less the masses and more the expert lawyer. But the main name of the game in the U.S., when it comes to enacting legal reform, is lobbying. Who has money and would be willing to fund certain kinds of reform? What politicians would be willing to be bought? Or perhaps what politicians could be elected that could then support reform of the political, social, or economic law? Consequently, the consciousness and activity of the masses plays a fairly minor role in most cases. In the few times where mass action is necessary, it's usually to support a law written by a legal expert seeking to pave a new world for the people they think they are genuinely fighting for. According to the legalist, a society isn't defined by its class structure, nor is any one class truly in power over another in a bourgeois democracy. In fact, lawmakers, not the masses, are the real makers and remakers of history. But for the revolutionary communist, legalism is perhaps an even worse trail to get lost on than economism. Legalism 
wrongly assumes that America's political and class relations are fundamentally just and therefore only need modified. The social democratic government is a state that belongs to all people. The battle is to be struggled and won at the ballot box and in the higher realms of actual policy making. Yet, a historical materialist analysis leads us to see that the very nature of the state is a tool for class rule. Under capitalism and colonialism, the state does not represent or serve in the interests of everyone equally. Rather, the state is the weapon of the ruling bourgeois colonizer. Thus, legalism and the prioritization of legal reform over revolutionary mass struggle serves in the interests of our ruling bourgeois colonizer class. Spontaneity The worshipping of spontaneity is the ideological tendency put into practice by a movement or organization that, in word and deed, assumes that the experiences and conditions of the people will lead them to a correct understanding of the root of their problems, as well as the correct solutions. The masses need no leadership, no education, no development of consciousness, and they certainly do not need a party of revolutionaries guided by Marxism, Leninism, Maoism to develop and guide their activity, resistance, and mass actions. The experiences of the masses alone will guide them to both correct understanding and correct action. And any attempt from a communist party to develop their consciousness, channel their energy, guide their struggle, is commandist and oppressive. Let the masses come to correct analyses, strategy, and tactics on their own, the worshipper of spontaneity will say. As the conditions worsen, the people will inevitably awaken to the necessity of their struggle and will undoubtedly know who their enemies and allies are and what must be done, the priest of spontaneity will preach. Worshippers of spontaneity will reject the necessity of organization. They reject placing the national liberation struggles of indigenous nations and Africans and diaspora peoples from Central and South America, West Asia and East and Southeast Asia on scientific investigation and concrete analysis. The proletarian struggle for proletarian democracy is to be guided not by revolutionary science, but by the people's inner feelings, inner desires, inner knowledge, organization, consciousness, theory. These things are a waste of time, even barriers to the people. Instead, stand back and join the masses when they do what they do. If this action is guided by this thought, then participate in this action until they think otherwise. If that action is guided by that thought, then participate in that action until they think otherwise. Don't try and develop. Don't try and educate. Don't try and lead, because the masses will one day in unison think and act as one. But the revolutionary communist knows this is not a sign of loving the masses or even respecting them. It is a sign of betraying the masses. It is true that party members, revolutionary cadre, and the historians and theorists of the movements for national liberation and proletarian democracy cannot come close to correct understandings of the people's conditions, America's internal and external contradictions, or the various ideas of the various groups that make up our various classes, 
without being deeply immersed within and linked to the masses through real, actual mass work. A so-called revolutionary communist who is above mass work is no revolutionary communist. They are a fool who can only correct their failure through accepting criticism, making a self-criticism, developing mass work. But the masses struggle for national sovereignty, for working-class liberation, and political power needs to be guided and organized, assumes the development of the consciousness of the working class and colonized nations, depends upon revolutionary theory that has been developed by revolutionary masses. And this is because the very conditions of the masses, the class positions in society that they are subjected to, prevents them from having the time and the energy to study their conditions, study revolutionary theory, study the successes and failures of their revolutionary history, and organize their nation and class based on scientific analysis. Organization, the development of consciousness, revolutionary theory, and a Maoist party defined by its link to the masses and development of a mass line. These are not the enemies of the people, but rather the keys to unleashing a struggle that can actually end their exploitation and realize their freedom. The work of revisionist organizations that worship spontaneity reproduce the masses' oppression by following the whims of the masses who are daily bombarded with false ideas by their oppressors. In contrast, the work of revolutionary communist organizations must serve the people by helping them get free. Therefore, the worshipping of spontaneity serves to reproduce America's internal contradictions of colonialism and capitalism. Alright, that concludes lesson one of our lessons from Lenin. Lessons number two and three will be out soon, as well will our fourth episode on the concluding remarks. As I mentioned in my recent conversation with Brett from Rev Left on mysticism, criticism, and self-criticism, we just hit three years and 100 episodes, so thank you to everyone who has, has listened to the show, has supported the show, whether through Patreon or reviews and ratings on iTunes and Spotify, or has even sent a link to a friend. Really appreciate you all. Chris and I are just getting started, and I hope you find this particular series on these three lessons that I've learned from my reading of what is to be done, insightful, and helpful. Again, I'm going to post the entire essay on Patreon, so if you want to check that out, you'll be able to find it there later this week. And that's all I got, so be looking out for lesson two in a couple days, and we will talk soon. Bye.